4: Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact
2: order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231 24. Excludes tax must update to rewards. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Kavita Puri. Kavita is a BBC journalist and broadcaster who presents Three Pounds in My Pocket on Radio 4. Over three series so far, these programmes have used oral history to tell the stories of South Asians and Britain since the 1950s. Series 4, which begins today, on the 8th of January, takes the story
4: onto the turn of the 20th century. Here's a clip. The Al-Qaeda attacks on the Twin Towers immediately shaped politics and lives in Britain. Our
5: workplace was predominantly Muslim. It was an IT company that was predominantly Asian-Pakistani and... Uh, the people that bought our sandwiches decided they didn't want to do that anymore <laughs> you know, for, for our, our lunch service.
4: Uh, it was an immediate change in attitudes towards Muslim and Islam in the public square. In Oldham, just months after the riot, Abdul's family felt that change straight away.
5: Two days after, my sister-in-law, she went to town. She got her headscarf ripped off her head and thrown thrown away and
1: um, she was spat at. I was eight months pregnant when 9-11 happened, and I was we, we'd moved back to Liverpool then. Farah
4: Saeed was preparing for the birth of her first child.
1: We didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl, but our favourite name, if we had a boy, was Talib, an ancient Arabic word that means seeker of knowledge, so a very beautiful meaning, and... Suddenly, after nine eleven you couldn 't switch on the news without the Taliban being mentioned in every breath, and so suddenly it didn't feel like the most appropriate time to drop a name like that. So we opted for our second choice, which was omar and again, once we called him that, we realized a few weeks later that the person in charge of the Taliban at the time was uh, a man called Mullah Omar, so <laughs> we could have had Talib all along, but yeah, I mean that you know, it, 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 what was happening in the news was affecting, you know, decisions like that that we were making. So,
0: a little while back, Kavita spoke to BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar about some of the stories and themes to emerge from the new series.
5: The latest strand of your series on Asians in Britain centres on the 1990s. Would it be fair to describe this perhaps as a golden age in this story?
4: The 90s were absolutely the golden age. And that's how the people that I interviewed talked about it. So the the program's called Three Pounds in My Pocket. And the reason it's called Three Pounds is because when um, the generation that came over in the 50s and 60s arrived, they could only bring as little as three pounds. And so by the time you get to the 90s, it's really the children of the three pound generation who are coming of age. They're in their 20s and they have a very different relationship to Britain. Many were born here and this is their country. And so by the 90s, they were very much navigating their way, their identity in Britain. And for so many of them, it was a mixture of home life, which may still have had ties back to the mother country, whether it was India, Pakistan or Bangladesh, but also Britain. So the 90s was really a a wonderful decade for um, expression in terms of music and film and culture generally.
5: So we're talking here about second generation British Asians. And so they had, I suppose, a dual identity that they were both British and Asian. For them, was that a positive thing or did they almost feel caught between the two?
4: Obviously, it's a really individual uh, response. Um, Everyone feels differently. What you've got to remember is people who were coming of age in the 90s were living in Britain in the 80s, 70s. And that was a really hard time to be South Asian. It was normal for people to be very overtly racist, whether it was the the National Front in the late 70s chasing you down the street, people saying things in the street. Uh, It was hard to be South Asian. And if your parents, your mum was wearing a sari, for example, as one of our interviewees says, you know, you you really stuck out. And I think people just wanted to, to blend in but I think by the nineties, people had a bit more confidence in their identity, and what I found is because because a lot more money was going into the arts and culture sector, people from the second generation were meeting each other, and they found that when they spoke to people who had a similar kind of experience they could they could share that what one of my interviewees talks about this this kind of no man's land that you're you're not like your parents because you weren't you know, you weren't born on the Indian subcontinent, but you didn't quite feel like the people that you were at school with or university who who had many, many generations in this country. And so I think people were trying to find their, their voice for want of a, of a better uh, way of describing it. And they really, really did. But at the beginning of the 90s, British South Asian culture was absolutely not part of the mainstream. Other cultures were. So people wanted to, you know, be black or identify with black music, black fashion. That wasn't the case. Um, Nobody wanted to identify with being British South Asian. But by the end of the decade, I'm not saying it was mainstream, but many of my interviewees felt it was kind of cool. You know, you had Brimful of Asher, it was number one in the charts. You had Talvin Singh, who, who won the Mercury Prize. Everyone knew about Goodness Gracious Me by the end of the decade. You know, everyone could identify with that, whether you're British South Asian or whether you're, whether you were English. Uh, and so it just felt, it felt more natural to have that coexistence.
5: So what were kind of some of the cultural expressions of the British South Asian community at this time?
4: Well, in the last series, um, I I, I talked about daytimers. And these were these underground clubs that British South Asians went to, to listen to music and dance, but they would go literally in the middle of the daytime. So like from 12 to three, partly because their parents might not have let them, but also because they didn't have the luxury of going to... Clubs or venues because people didn't want them. They they didn't want uh, British South Asians because they thought there'd be fights, or their kind of English Um, punters wouldn't turn up, and they also thought British South Asians didn't drink, so they wouldn't make a lot of money. Um, And by the early nineties, what you see is that at night there were these kind of one-off gigs. It'd be sometimes depending on the venue or maybe a mixture of Western and Eastern music. But in 1993, something really big happened. And Bombay Jungle was a night in the Wag Club in Soho. It was a really established club, and it dedicated Tuesday night to British South Asian music. And pretty early on, Hundreds of people were lining up to come and it was a real mix of people. So Punjabi, um, Bengali, Gujarati, and they were often university students and they had two floors. So one floor was Punjabi that played predominantly Bhangra music, the second floor played hip hop, R&B and soul. And they were huge and people did drink and people wearing Western clothes at the time. And, you know, all these different communities mixing together, dancing together, um, listening to their music, listening to Western music. It was a really, really special time. And, and what grew out of that was things like Club Carly that, again, was fusion music but was for the LGBT community, which was way ahead of its time in the late 90s. And then you had really well-established places like the Blue Note that had Anoka Nights, which Talvin Singh was involved in. So there was a lot of things that had moved from the underground, which were daytimers in the mid to late 80s, that were becoming slowly part of the mainstream
5: And were there any tensions between the two different generations here, the generation that arrived in Britain and then their children who were beginning to assimilate more with mainstream British culture?
4: The generational aspect is a really interesting one. And I'm really glad that you raised that, Rob, because I think when people think of the British South Asian community, they always think of it as a very uh, kind uh, kind of one group of people, But they're not, you know, they are divided by religion or region, class, caste. And that is the prism that people always talk about, the the immigrant or the British South Asian experience. But people rarely talk about this generational difference. And I think it's very profound. I think generational differences, you know, between you and your parents, they are big. But when when you're second generation from an immigrant family... You really feel that because your touchstones, your cultural references, your experiences are very different from that of your, of your parents. You know, a lot of people in the second generation never told their parents to this day about the kind of racist abuse. And actually, a lot of people in the first generation never really talked about how hard it was when they arrived here. And that first generation, they still held ties to the motherland. They wanted to keep their head down you know they probably remembered the empire so they were happy to be here but they wanted to survive here whereas the second generation didn't want to survive why should they survive this is their country and so they fought for their rights and they were much more vocal about it and sometimes that that brought that brought clashes but obviously over things like you know boyfriends girlfriends who you go out with what you listen to all that kind of stuff was is normal within generations, but it was it is much more pronounced within, you know, uh, second generation from immigrant families. I've spe- spoken to a lot of people that we've spoken to for over seven years, and there's one family, Farah and Rooney, who we've spoken to, and they had a conversation which honestly left us all in tears because it brought home to me how progress, how the second generation see progress and how the first generation see progress are two completely different things. So Farah is in her early 20s, in in the 90s, and progress for her was meeting these wonderful people from a writer's collective who she could share her experiences of being British South Asian. She was going out, she was in Liverpool, her parents were in London, no one was telling her what she could and she couldn't do. But her mother found that really diff- difficult that she left London to go to university and then decided after she graduated that she wouldn't come back and and she said the phone call where her daughter told her that left her heartbroken. she had never imagined when she would come to this country that that is what would happen that her daughter would would leave her and she said she describes going to the sea she lived in in London she took herself off to the sea to Kent and wept and and I think that the hopes for the first generation were to keep their families safe and to prosper, to, to be in jobs that were safe and to marry someone of the same religion. That was not always what the second generation wanted. You know, they, they wanted to be uh, their own people, express themselves and their identity. They wanted to choose who they married. And so progress for both of those generations meant very difficult things and it's painful when you when you realize that actually two, two generations don't don't want the same thing
5: and how big a milestone in this story would you say the 1997 general election is
4: um for a lot of people um you know they'd grown up under under thatcher and thatcher uh and her and her premiership and later major had seen big um, curbs on on immigration. But when new labor came in, there was a very different sense of what it was to be British. Tony Blair talked of you know, the old paradigm of the 20th century was capitalism and socialism, but that wasn't the case and that the 21st century would be a battle of progress against forces of conservatism. And they, he almost describes, if you look at those early speeches of New Labour, it's like, it sounds like a post-racial society that he's describing. He's saying that You know, to be British, it's it's not even about race anymore. Um, And famously, um, uh, Robin Cook, who was then the Foreign Secretary in 2001, talked about chicken tikka masala being the national dish. So to be British felt all-embracing. It felt very inclusive. And I think that a lot of British South Asians, they talk about feeling... Welcomed for the first time, a lot of the people that I I spoke to, and that, and that promise of the nineties, that that the, so many describe as the golden era, partly I think was because of of the political shifts that then happened in in the late nineties, um, and certainly with the coming in of of New Labour.
5: And so this, I suppose, would be the era of multiculturalism. Certainly, when that word becomes particularly popular, but. Was that always the
4: case on the ground? Uh, No, and and it's really important to point out that, I mean, multiculturalism as a term had been around really for, 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 you know, in the 80s as well. But um, I think it's really important to point out that while we talk about the 90s as a golden period, there was always this undercurrent. Um, And 1993 and the murder of Stephen Lawrence was something that was profound profoundly felt by people in the South Asian community. Uh, they felt that that murder was something that could have been them if they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And racist murders, which people had seen, you know, in the, in the 70s, you know, the way people talked about The murder of Stephen Lawrence, all my interviewees, they all remember it. It all affected them profoundly. You know, one of them was seven at at the time. And she remembers her father having the conversation with her, which was about race, which was about you're different. You look different. And if you ever get into trouble, you need to go into a shop or you you need to look for an ally to protect you. She was seven years old. And I, I think that when I heard the way people talked about Stephen Lawrence, it reminded me from something in the second series when an 18-year-old a young Sikh boy called Gurdip Singh Chugga was murdered in the streets in, in the late afternoon in South Hall. And every South, British South Asian, whether you were from the first generation or, or you were a teenager at the time, remembers that event. It was back in 1976. Because that's what they feared, and I, even though the '90s were better, you know ra- that racist murder happened that same year. Racist attacks were on the rise in in some areas where there were high numbers of British South Asians. You know, in 1999 there was the nail bombing um, campaign that targeted the Bengali community. So, of course, the '90s were a golden era, but we we mustn't forget those undercurrents. And by 2001 what we see is that the, the Blair vision of a modern Britain, a post-racial Britain, was not something felt by everyone and not always felt by people within the British South Asian community. Because if you look at those northern industrial towns, there were groups of people, I'm talking about places like Bradford or Oldham, who didn't feel that that Britain represented their Britain. You know, we're talking about places where... Um, where there may have been up to 50% of unemployment, where kids were going through the school system and couldn't find jobs. Um, and there were another, there was another group that felt disenfranchised, um, people who flocked to the far right. They didn't feel multicultural Britain was for them either. And so what you see in the late spring of 2001 are riots breaking out. Uh, and the reasons are really, really complicated. Um, and A bit like the riots in 1981, one of the main causes is deprivation. And and what the report that came out into the Oldham riots in 2001, what it stated was that there were these kind of parallel groups of people living virtually segregated lives. And they'd been let down by the authorities and they talked about the danger of allowing this to continue. And so you see that not everybody felt that this this kind of squeaky clean vision of Britain was theirs. And so would you say that rather than racism having gone away
5: in this period, it perhaps had evolved?
4: I think that racism was much less overt than it was in, in the 70s and 80s. But I think that if you're growing up in places like Oldham and you've got the National Front, agitating. Racism was very, very real. You know, I've heard the archive reports of, of what was happening at the time and you hear terrible words that you don't hear very often now being being shouted at. Um, and, and so I, I think that legislation had been enforced over the years. And I think that people realised in 2001 that, that there were things that you, you could say and things that you couldn't say. Now, of course, people still said them, but it was, it was much less regular. You know, in the 70s and 80s, when people were walking home from school, they regularly talked about getting beaten up, maybe by the National Front or by kids from other schools. Um, they were called names. That was normal. That is not happening in 2001. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And he said, when we arrived, we were seen as black because blacks and British South Asians were all kind of lumped together. And then I was seen as Asian, kind of a amorphous word. And then I was seen as Muslim. But when September 11th happened, I was seen as a
3: terrorist. <laughs> Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, pcom slash History Extra.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
5: Now, I suppose a a very important juncture in this story is 9-11. Um... What does that mean for the, the British Asian community? And to what extent does that start to divide up the British Asian
4: community? The British South Asian community from the early 80s onwards had already been starting to fragment for various reasons. So there was the Amritsa massacre in 1984 um, that that's kind of very much saw the Sikh community separate themselves off from other parts the British South Asian community, or some Sikhs, um, and then when the when the um, protests happened against Salman Rushdie's book, the Satanic Verses, in Bradford, there were some Muslims who wanted to kind of separate from from some of the Muslims who were protesting. But the other groups, the Sikhs and Hindus, also began to then differentiate themselves. But what you see with two thousand and one is. the the British, South Asian, Hindus and Sikhs really moving away. And some of the contributors who are Muslim, they can recall that very, very distinctly. Um, And so um, one of my interviewees who was Muslim said something very interesting. He arrived in 1957. He said, when we arrived, we were seen as black because blacks and British South Asians were all kind of lumped together. And then I was seen as Asian, kind of amorphous word. And then I was seen as Muslim. But when September 11th happened, I was seen as a terrorist. Um, And so you have those those splits happening. Um, But also what you see is this trajectory that we saw in the 90s, this golden period, this flourishing, where people were proud to wear their British South Asian identity on their sleeve. 2001, September 11th happens, and people recoil again. Uh, and whether you're British, South Asian, Muslim, or Hindu, or Sikh, people's heads go back down again. And they don't want to put their heads above the parapet. And a lot of my interviewees say that's where that moment of cultural flourishing really, really came to an end. But it's also worth pointing out that there was this backlash against the Muslim community. But initially, there was also a backlash against the Sikh community, gudwaras were attacked, people with turbans were attacked. Um, And actually, you know, if you've got brown skin and people looked at you, they didn't ask, are you Muslim Sikh or Hindu? You know, all those old kind of things that people had heard before came back out again. So it really did reverse the clock in so many ways um, in terms of progress that had been made up until that point.
5: Over time, as the British South Asian community have become more settled, do you get a sense that some of the, perhaps the older generations, now feel more akin to what you might call the white British population than they do to newer immigrants, even from the subcontinent?
4: I think that's quite a personal question. But what I would say is wider events have made people question their place in Britain. And I think that uh, post Brexit, and remember, it's really worth noting that a significant number, a minority, a significant minority of British South Asians did vote for Brexit. But after Brexit, there was an uptick in racist attacks. And people that I've spoken to did say that things they hadn't heard for a long time, go home, you know, all that stuff started to, to reappear. And the sense that I have got from making these programmes and what we explore in the third programme is, is progress linear? Do, does each generation have to prove itself in Britain? And there is a sense that, that that maybe you do, because you think you're settled, you think things are going well, and then September the 11th happens, and then you have to prove yourself once more, or you think things are going well, and then Brexit makes you question your place. And then something else that we couldn't have anticipated, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, again, has really changed things in a way that I hadn't expected. And What I think is really interesting is, so one of my interviewees who had said that Stephen Lawrence, when he was growing up in the 90s, had a a hugely profound effect on him, in the same way so did the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd on his daughter. And his daughter came to him and they had the conversation about being different in this country, looking different and what that means but she wanted to know, interestingly, about her history, which he couldn't answer. And I think that what the kind of conversation after Black Lives Matter has thrown up is that, you know, battles were fought and won by the first and second generation. You know, legislation is now on the statute book, but... What is happening now is a kind of what my Professor Gurupal Singh, who is one of my regular contributors, always talks about is what we're going entering now is a kind of post-colonial struggle where now everything is up for stakes. and it's And it's not just about being discriminated against, but it's what he says actually is it's now part of the culture war. And so what we're really talking about is who Britain is and the stories that it tells itself about our country. What does it mean to be British? And so when he talks about everything being up for grabs, I think he's talking about things like decolonising the curriculum. And, you know, whose version of history are we telling? You know, look, just look at the subject of Winston Churchill, for example, and the debate that there has been over that. And so, I feel that this next phase, which is is a kind of, whether you want to call it the culture war or, you know, this big cultural discussion is is the next phase in the development of, let's call it race relations. But that's where we're heading. And a big part of that, funnily enough, is, is about the kind of history that I've been doing like Three Pounds, which is, I have always argued, it's British history. It's about the stories we want to tell, but the stories we include and the stories that we say are part of of British history. And, you know, whether that's in the curriculum or, you know, talking about empire more openly and freely, you know, the empire ended a long time ago. You know, we surely should be able to, to talk about it, but it feels very live and very, very raw. And I think that's now the territory that we are entering.
5: And so um, on the subject of Black Lives Matter, that has clearly brought you know a lot more focus on Black history, which is clearly really important. But do you think we also need a kind of similar focus on British Asian history?
4: I absolutely do. I think it's absolutely right that there is a, um, you know, Black History Month. But in the last census, there were over 3 million British South Asians in our country. Uh, The next census is due to take place next year and there will be many more, I'm sure. And, you know, the, the history of Britain and the history of the Indian subcontinent are so intertwined over many centuries. To me, it is inevitable that at some point we have to learn about British South Asian history because it's British history. I don't understand how you can't talk about why there are so many British South Asians in this country if you don't understand about empire. Because if you don't understand empire, you don't understand why the migration happened, why in 1948, with the Nationality Act, that every single member of the empire in the Commonwealth was automatically a British citizen. And until 1962, that remained the case. And so... It's, I suppose it's a it's a political decision why we don't learn about it, but I think it is an inevitability whether it's five years or 10 years. We have to learn about it because I need to know, but we all need to know about this history.
5: And the people that you've been speaking to, you've been speaking to for several years now, how far has have that the dramatic recent events, including things like Black Lives Matter, Brexit, I suppose now COVID-19, how has that change their view of their history and their time in Britain.
4: You know, that first generation didn't ponder much about their history. They were a generation, as I suppose many pioneers or first generation immigrant communities who come, they just look forward. You know, they had difficult lives to be accepted, but to provide. And so they didn't really look back. They didn't think too much about their history. They didn't pass too much on. And the second generation were navigating, you know, their place between the first and their place their, their place in this country. I think it's the third generation who are really curious and are demanding um, that, that they learn about their history and they know their history. And what's really interesting to me is a lot of young British South Asians love these podcasts because it's it's often the first time that they've heard about their history because they're not hearing about it in schools. There aren't any books out there about it. And they will write to me and say, how do I start that conversation with my my grandparents or my parents? What well, you know, what well, I really want to talk to them and I and I will always say, you must. You must recall them on your iPhone because once That history is gone. It's your history. You can never get it back. You can never ask those questions. And I think for people who are descended from first-generation immigrants, your tie to this land is is fragile. You know, I'm only second generation. Um, And and I think it's really important to know your your history, even if you weren't born in in the country that your parents came from. Um, Because you know, that's who you are. Because the the history of of this country, you know, going back many years, is that is not always your history. It's not where it starts. And so people people must know.
0: That was Kavita Puri. Series four of Three Pounds in My Pocket begins today, the 8th of January, on BBC Radio 4 at 11am. You can also catch up on episodes on BBC Sounds including all of the previous three series. A version of this interview appears in the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on Thomas Beckett, the history of vaccines, the World War II battle for Sicily and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Listen tomorrow to hear a lecture on the decline and death of Henry VIII.